Hey everyone, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and welcome to another episode of Line It Up, a roll-on podcast. Thanks again for joining us for some roll-on thought leadership. We appreciate you listening along. As you are watching and listening to today's Roll-On Thought Leadership, make sure that you're heading to our website, rollon.com. Again, rollon.com. And make sure that you're subscribing to Line It Up on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new ones. You don't want to miss any of our Roll-On Thought Leadership. So on today's episode of Line It Up, we're digging into the history books a bit, so get those thinking caps on. We're uh, basically digging into the background of our industry a bit, tracking the timeline, the evolution, and strategies for best use around linear bearings specifically. It's a major staple of roll-on and a big part of the industry today, used across various industries from industrial to aerospace to logistics, specialty vehicles, the medical field as well. Linear bearings have become an indispensable solution for smooth, quiet, and efficient motion of all kinds. So with our podcast today, we're going to unpack exactly how linear bearings have changed over the course of the last 40 years or so, but more importantly, why that evolution has left a lot of end users still a little outdated on what makes for a modern quality linear bearing. So we're hoping to provide some of that uh, uh, industry education today with our conversation. We'll provide strategies on how to get the most out of your linear bearing and how to make that right investment into the correct product for your industry and your use case. So here to give insights on linear bearings are two Roll-On thought leaders. We're joined by Scott Spangler, president of Roll-On, and Andrew Allendorf, director of sales, also with Roll-On. Scott, Andrew, great to have you both on. How are y'all doing? Great to be here. Thanks, Daniel. Good to be here. Yeah, real pleasure getting to chat with both of you. We've got uh, a lot of industry experience with us today on the line, and that's exactly where we're going to start. You both have decades of experience in this industry. Scott, you've been in linear motion from engineering to production to sales management for more than 30 years now. Andrew, on your end, you've been in linear bearings now for about 22 years, 17 of which were spent with the world's largest linear company. So pulling from this combined more than 50 years of experience, how have you both seen linear bearings evolve over that time? Just kind of lay out some of the key moments that you would say defined uh, each of the next iterations, the next phases of linear bearing solutions. Track that timeline for us to start, and then we'll get even deeper. You got to look back really how before the days of linear bearings, when people were using dovetail slides and, and playing ways and basically friction or oil film between steel. And there really was no bearings. It was, it was, it was load carrying, but it was, there wasn't a, a standard bearing that was used. And then in the, 50s, I well, actually the, the first profile guy was patented back in 30, 1932, but then came the round shaft bushings and, and they started uh, hitting, hitting um, a lot of automation type things, uh, reduced friction, and then the profile rail became popular in the 70s. And then, you know, since then, there's been a lot of other innovations, but really the profile rail was the one that kind of kind of stuck through time and kept people just kept using it regardless of the application. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Scott. I, I don't know how much, how exciting you can make this subject sound, <laughs> the history of, of ball bearings or linear bearings, but once you dig into the history of this, it's what's exciting for a company like Roll-On is that we've we've developed a, a, a pro, products that, that fit the, the certain niches in the market, 
And when you look at the history and the history of, of, like Scott mentioned, the profile rail, really in the 70s, it was developed and then really took off in the United States in the 80s and 90s. Um, there has been no other real changes, no other real technology additives to this market, which makes that exciting, especially when you look at uh, your customer base and, and the available market and what they're using. It kind of gets you excited because, um, you know, there's some solutions and there's some things that they can be doing better. I mean, it was designed at first for machine tool, machine tool only. It was it was meant for machine tool and everyone's using it in all kinds of uh non-compliant type applications and and robotics and and assembly machines that it really was never designed to do maybe that's a good transition note here it sounds like the most uh exciting or just like the most impactful evolution we've seen over the years is how linear bearings how ball bearings have uh evolved to be more niche and really meet specific needs for different markets so i'm curious how did those various industry applications influenced the evolution of linear bearings. Basically, as they made their way to more industries in a scaled way, did this force them to adapt? Yes or no? And to what effect? Okay. Well, I think, like Scott said, let's go back and, and, and look at the profile rail. It was designed for machine tool. Machine tool is the two very critical things. One is it's high precision and it can be high load and speed. Right. So the profile rail was designed specifically for that. So here you have the customer. He buys a machine tool and he's got a, um, a, uh, a production worker. He's loading and unloading, loading and unloading. He looks at it and he goes, now, how can I do that quicker, faster and better? I've got a great machine that has great throughput, but I'm limited by the person that's loading it. So how can we automate that? So they look at the machine tool this five axis machine tool and they say, okay, well, look at this is, this is how this machine is moving. The rolling element is a profile rail. So they take that same concept and they put it external to the machine, right? Well, loading the machine doesn't require five microns or 10 microns of tolerance or repeatability even. It, it needs a, a larger scale, but, but that's what is available in the market. So automation evolved from the machine tool market, utilizing the tools that machine tools were built on. I'll get that makes sense. Um, and, and as it grew faster and faster and we started automating critical processes, we're using the same tools that are available, these profile rails, ball screws, machine ball screws, that give us great tolerance and great repeatability in possibly areas that we don't need that. Um, and I think that evolution now, we everything is automated. We're looking at automating our homes and, and obviously in plants and factories all over the world. Um, so the niche really created itself because there's ultimately a various amount of markets. Yeah, we can divide them into automotive, aerospace, medical, and all those kind of things. But each one of those segments have their own level of, of um, let's say, tolerance and repeatability that are required for, for the uh, specific uh, project. So expanding a bit on that, during those several decades of evolution, how did the process for choosing the right bearing also change? I guess maybe more specifically, what resources or client education has been in place to help end users understand this is the right linear bearing or this is the wrong linear bearing for me? And do you think that those resources or that workflow is still adequate today? Does it still match up? What are your thoughts? Part of the answer to that is that it didn't change. 
the process to choose the, the right linear bearing just stayed the same as it did before. People looked at, at load capacity and they looked at, uh, well, they basically looked at load capacity. <laughs> uh, what, what load does it take? They didn't look at, you know, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bolt this onto a machine surface and, you know, it needs to be within mounted within these amount, these so many microns of, of tolerance. Uh, now they're bolting it down to an I-beam that's not machined. It's just, it's all over the place from a tolerance standpoint and they're still expecting the same results. Well, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so everyone's looking at low capacity only instead of how compliant does my whole system need to be in order to put together my machine easily and to make it run smoothly. Yeah, I guess I guess if you're a uh, a profile rail manufacturer, then you wanna keep the status quo, right? Because that's what everybody's using. Like Scott said, it's it, it, it really depends on you know what what are what are we what are, what is the criteria that we're we're designing to okay so if if the uh if it, if it's uh if it's high speed high load uh repeatability then those all have their own parameters but each one of those have a level of degree of of high to medium to um low why do you need 10 microns of uh, accuracy to shove a snickers bar in a a container. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, don't disrespect those Snickers. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious how, uh, because if we basically assume here, uh, some of the biggest evolutions came from the fact that linear, excuse me, linear bearings, ball bearings, uh, evolved to become more niche and to fit into more industrial settings. How has the fact that, that, um, that resource process, that workflow, that end user education hasn't changed. How is that impacting the fact that uh, these solutions are now seen in more markets? Has that increased that challenge and made it even more consequential? What's the intersection there? I mean, you can look at I look look at the the lean term. You know, lean manufacturing was was really caught on. You know, over the last uh, couple of decades, part of lean manufacturing is also lean design, and that portion of uh, the, the whole lean process seems to be being ignored, if you will. Um, lean design means you're designing under certain parameters uh, that would possibly cause, cause the bearing to fail. And that's really what the, you need to design around, not over the same thing that you've designed the last 30 years. Right. So let, let's, let's just take a quick example of something you know, if you if you buy a stock OEM truck, right, a four wheel drive truck, and you drive it on the road every day, then what you've bought is good for what you're using it for. If you decide to take that truck off road and do other things with it, then something on that vehicle has to change because the conditions in which it was sold and bought under are quite different than than what you're using it for, and vice versa. You wouldn't, you know, I I wouldn't. Um, uh, I wouldn't take a uh, Grand Prix car and and race it on a drag strip, or I wouldn't take a drag car and and enter a Grand Prix race. Um, and there's some real clear differences in in the different products out there as to um, uh, what the customer actually is uh, requiring in the in the market. Expanding on that a bit, I want to focus on. One of the bigger issues that we're still seeing in the industry, you've both brought it up, but I just want to hone in even more. This would be on the design side, which impacts the end user's ability to choose that quality solution with confidence, 
really the big issue here is that engineers are still testing their linear bearing systems with only a few focused criteria. A really common testing and QC method right now for linear bearings is to, like y'all said, test for load as well as life calculations to make sure the bearing can live up to industry wear and tear, industry fatigue. But what is surprisingly uncommon and what is a very baseline practice across other manufacturing and heavy industry context is testing for failure modes, specifically basically putting the product or the solution through scenarios of is this going to fail in X, Y, or Z way and making sure that it can either not fail that way or can respond accordingly. So can you break down this dynamic for us? Why are we not seeing more design of linear bearings with a focus on failure modes? Why is there still such an emphasis on just designing for load and life? That's the question. Why, why, it, that is. why is that happening? I mean, people design around failures all the time. I mean, if you bought a car, I'll go back to Drew's car scenario. You bought a car that you knew was going to fail after a certain amount of time. I mean, it's like taking the dragster and riding on the, a curvy track. Well, it's, it's misapplied, you know? And uh, the same thing happens with, with bearings. Bearings, you, you rarely hear a customer come back and say, you know, this bearing did great. It reached its, its, its theoretical lifetime and I need another one. No, it doesn't happen. It's failed because of either debris getting in there. Uh, one of the number one failings in linear guides is because of misalignment because people don't know how to design a machine to be compliant enough so they don't have to spend tons of time and money to make these things, um, parallel with each other. So we're, we're designing we're not designing under failure modes. Bearings are murdered out there. They're, they're, that's what happens to bearings. They don't live their lifetime and, and go, go away silently. Uh, you know, contamination, crashes, uh, all kinds of different things, but misalignment is the big one. And, and, uh, until we start designing under or, or designing and looking at the design criteria based on failure modes, we're going to overkill these bearings such that it's going to cost more money to design the machine and, and build the machine. So kind of building on that a little bit, um, if you think about your toolbox, right, um, you've got ultimately different size wrenches because not every bolt and nut is the same size, right? Um, now, you can have an, an adjustable style uh, wrench in your box. It's good. But if, if you're doing a lot of work with it, you want something that's a little bit more precision than an adjustable wrench, but it will work. Um, and we look at this, and a profile rail is a single wrench in your toolbox, okay? So it's good really for one thing. Can you use it for multiple things? You can, but the odds are of the product failing early in the field, like Scott said, under those failure modes are more apt to happen. And... I think what's more important is that if we look at the failure modes, like Scott said, you know, debris inside of the bearing block, we've got misalignment is absolutely number one we've seen across industry. And that's Scott and I, 50 years of, of working in this industry is misalignment is the number one failure. Okay. Um, crashes if the, you know, the, the system extends. Okay. And overloading the bearing also. So when we look at those things, uh, when we look at those failure modes, um, and if we design to those, right, if we look at misalignment, if we design to those, then we come up with a completely different picture and a completely different path. But we don't, but people aren't designing around those and they're not designing on the ease to manufacture the machine. 
they're, they're using a product, they're using the adjustable wrench because it works, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't work as long and as well and for less cost. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's about maximizing the right tool and making sure everyone understands uh, why it's worth investing in that new tool or changing your workflows. Again, there's a lot of moving pieces there. So you've mentioned uh, how there are some very specific factors other than wear and tear that usually cause the failure of linear bearings. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? How can designers strategize around some of those failures? And are there any key industries where maybe this is more pressing and more urgent to resolve? Yeah, I, I think, uh, first of all, is honestly look, looking at your application and you can walk through a, a decision process as to what the uh, repeatability and uh, the tolerance needs to be that you're trying to achieve, right? And what we find is is everybody uh, within our, well, not everybody, that's a broad term. A, a lot of our customers in the industry use some very fat words. When we talk about, well, well what, what, is, what does the tolerance need to be? And they, and they say, well, it's very tight. Well, like Scott said, if you're putting a label on a ketchup bottle, right, tight to them may be two or three millimeters. In our world, that's a mile, Okay. So when we say tight, we, we're talking 10, 15, 20 microns, okay? So in that process of deciding what you really need, what, what we have discovered is that walking through this process of understanding your failure modes, designing to that failure mode, if you've got a process that doesn't require 20 microns of repeatability and doesn't have a high load, then you're, you shouldn't be using profile rail. If you are, you're spending probably as high as 30% too much and costing your company time to market, speed to market, right? So um, looking at some of the different um, uh, products and available on the market. And listen, it's it's like with any anything else. I'll, I'll use this analogy, and I, and I hope it goes over well. But you know, when the Atkins diet first came out, I, I remember that, that everybody talked about, well, I can eat meat all the time, and I'm going to lose weight. Well, that's that's ludicrous to me, right? But until you understand the science behind ketosis and what happens in the body and losing weight and that kind of stuff, then then it makes sense. And this is what we're battling: is this this uh, critical uh, motion in one direction of, of profile rail and certain linear uh, uh, products in, in the market have, have, it's a critical mass that we're trying to push against and say, well, just stop for a minute. Now that you've looked at the load and speed and, and that you need to achieve, now let's look at the failure modes. Are you designing to those failure modes? And if you're not, just stop, put your pen down and give us a call. It all starts at the design phase. That's that's the key. It starts right there. And if and if you're not aware of some of the newer products that are out there and available to you, then you go down that same cow path that everyone else has. So then let's provide a new cow path then. What can end users do, in y'all's opinion, to understand if a linear bearing is capable of dealing with their industry's strain under the worst conditions? You know, how do you actually assess what is right, what isn't going to work, and what are the key metrics? And, and honestly, to add to that, how do you make sure that the design was up to snuff for your needs as an end user? 
Okay, so let, let's let's just step back really quick. I'm going to answer. I'll, I'll help answer that with Scott, but let's 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 look at the market and let's say how much is this is actually happening that our customers um, are using. Typically, boy, I hate to say the wrong bearing uh, because I, I don't want to. I don't want to be too in your face, but I, I think that. Um, at one point in our careers, we, we did a, a SWOT analysis of, of the market, and we had no preconditions of what we wanted to find and what we were going to look at. And what we found is that over 50% of our customers that were buying a high-precision product didn't need it. And it was shocking. 50% of what they were automating didn't require that 20, 30, 40, 50 microns of repeatability. But what did that cost them ultimately? Well, machining the base, um, uh, doweling, all these things and then laser leveling to make sure that these components are lined up and there's no misalignment in the system. Because we know as we add misalignment, even as far as 40 microns, we can add up to almost a thousand pounds of force in the system, right? So we know that alignment is, is, is necessary. So when we looked at that market and we said, wow, so we're actually selling the wrong product to 50% of the people in our market. And 50% of those people are, are spending too much time and money on this specific product, okay? So looking at what they can do and how they can change that is basically asking the questions that Scott and I have laid out as to where, uh, what the project is, um, repeatability, um, loads, and then the five basic failure modes. And Scott, you may want to add. Well, it's about, uh, in my opinion, it's how compliant you want your system to be. And, and you're taking a, a very rigid uh, type bearing that's not compliant at all. And, and you're accommodating it by making all these other changes and adding all these additional costs when you can use a more compliant system and it's going to be easier to assemble. I mean, I just put together a um, a grill last weekend. And, you know, it, there's a big difference between a grill that has the machining just perfectly. And when you start aligning it, I mean, when you put together a grill, the tolerance is probably, what, a quarter inch over the whole, you know, length of the system. Well, what happens when you're when the hole isn't big enough and it's just supposed to be perfect? Well, if I'm going to be off a quarter inch when it comes to the end, I'll never be able to put the screw into the hole. So they make those assembly structures somewhat compliant. I mean, I'm not talking about linear bearings here, but do you get the idea so that it's easier to assemble so that people can do it at home? I think the assembly of a car, when you look at the length of a car, the overall length could be plus or minus a half inch, you know, when it comes down to the final assembly. So if you're not compliant in all these different features along the way you're going to get stuck or it's going to cost you a ton more money just to make it absolutely perfect so let's summarize this then if the process isn't working as intended today for end users to really understand what the best linear bearing is for their industry and their needs what would be those core questions that they should be asking themselves to determine what is the right bearing for their use case? So summarize it for us. What are those key questions they need to really list out and understand holistically before they try to lock in a solution? 
Daniel, let's just broaden your, what you just said. Listen, we, we have customers that do have issues, right? And some of the failure modes. But even if you don't have issues, because this is this is really a large part of the market, they go, no, we, we, we you know, this product works great for us. But they're living within their pain, the cost and, and the timing that they're losing. They don't actually understand what they're what what's actually happening. It's, it's just a better, there's a better solution um, out there. Um, and I guess, again, um, I'll, I'll start, Scott, with, with uh, Daniel's question is just stepping back. It's at the time of design and saying, okay, our, our loads and, and speed are very important, but what is, what is, what is the desired um, uh, tolerance and what is the desired repeatability in the system? What are we doing, right? And how flexible do we want that to be? No, I mean, you're, you're dead on. And I remember a survey done by one of the uh, mechanical design magazines uh, ended up saying that about 90% of our customers are concerned about misalignment. And we've already said misalignment is probably the number one failure. Yet I will go into a customer and say, do you have a problem with misalignment? And they'll say, absolutely not. I say, wow, because you know, 90% of the customers do. Um, what are you doing differently than everybody else? Well, I machine the base plates and then I take a little extra time in assembly and I shim the product. And I'm like, well, what does that cost you in time and extra machining cost? Well, I don't know. We've never really captured that. Well, that's what Drew's pointing out. He's saying, you know, take a step back, look at it from the design standpoint. Just because you're not having a problem doesn't mean you ha don't have an opportunity to improve your machine. Right. Right. And I think it's a big part of uh, just this broader access to the right metrics and the right holistic vision for all of your hardware and your processes to understand that sometimes little changes like that can really impact use of resources, uh, can impact bottom line. So if you have any examples you can share from uh, customers of yours or just industry players out there, either ones that were really dealing with some major issue or ones that were just kind of stomaching the issues and not thinking that there was any kind of green or grass on the other side, uh, how does a reimagined process for acquiring the right linear bearing provide some immediate relief to things like uh, use of resources, uh, labor, you know, manpower and time, uh, and just overall bottom line finances. Well, I mean, I'll start on that one. The, uh, there's, well, let's keep it generic and just say a white goods manufacturer, uh, very uh, secretive in their manufacturing process because there's a lot of offshore competition. And uh, so basically they designed all their assembly machines in-house and, um, which is great. I mean, so we're calling on engineering department. I remember this call. We're going calling on the engineering department and we're going over our products and they t start talking about the machining costs that they incur for sending out all their parts to be machined because they have to machine the base of them. They have to machine the saddle part. So everything lines up. I said, well, how much cost would it save you if you didn't have to do that machining? And the answer I got back was, well, we have to or else the linear guys will have a problem. Same guy that told me he didn't have an alignment problem, right? So he says, well, it's 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 hundreds of thousands of dollars because we don't do that in-house. We design the machines, we send it out, the parts get machined, and, and then we're done. And I said, well, you don't have to do that. Now, think about it. Think about it from that standpoint and start designing your machines. Yeah. Um, I'll tell a quick story. We we were uh, we were calling on a... Uh, um, 
a very large machine builder and uh, they were building a, a parts washer and uh, they had they were, they were literally conveying into the machine uh, very large cylinder heads and the process within the machine had very high tolerances to it right um, but feeding the part into the machine so let's say the part was you know 10 inches by six inches okay they had a door that opened up um, that was four feet by four feet so plenty of room for this part to go into the door from the conveyor but the conveyance system they used were the same components that they used inside the machine that could hold seriously about 25 microns of of repeatability right so looking at this i asked him i said well how much is how, you know how long does this take you to put this together oh well, no time at all really he says we use these components all the time and it's it's really super easy i said well show me this process right and as we walk through the process i said well okay so there were four elements to his process and i said well if we could take two and three out of them and just go from one to four what would that do to you he said well that's about three weeks it would save us i said I said, what happens then to your sales team when you say, hey, we can get a component out three weeks before our competitors? So that's where it starts affecting different levels within the organization, not only the sales team, uh, but manufacturing and obviously uh, upper management when you're starting to talk about uh, increasing uh, EBITDA and margin. Right. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's important to communicate it in that way, right? Hey, maybe this is a small sort of hardware change, right? You might think, yeah, this could be useful to some degree. But I think painting that holistic picture of imagine the repercussions of what happens when you save three weeks of time or when you save X number of dollars for your finances. What does that enable? Who are you able to now give a bonus to? Who are you able to hire on for extra help? Uh, you know, how does this enable, like you said, your marketing teams, your sales teams? That is really powerful uh, when one small change can do that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that is a, a big part of the strategy moving forward for making sure that end users understand why asking these questions matter. And then from there, it's just about making sure they ask the right questions, right? Yeah, I'm, I would, I'd go back to, you know, the process itself that you were talking about. Drew. You, you look at just sending a part out to get machined. So you have to involve who? You have to involve purchasing. You have to involve shipping. You have to involve quality control when it comes back. You have, I mean, receiving quality control. And it's gone through about six hands before it actually gets to the manufacturer, the, the, the assembler that needs to put it together. What's the cost for that? Right. And there's one, there's one quick element to this. One of the world's largest machine tool manufacturers in the world the manufacturers here in the States, um, had their largest warranty issue was their um, uh, just their sliding doors, okay? Well, what they were using is their machine tool, which they build a very, very, very good machine tool. They've got a great name in the industry. Well, what they did is they used those profile rails that are in the machine to open and close sliding doors. And that was their number one warranty issue because they had three planes that they were trying to align with uh, three different linear rails and ultimately six uh, uh, rolling blocks. Um, and our solution was not any cheaper, but their personification in the industry is that they had poor quality because of just their rolling doors, right? 
So think about it. So after a couple months, if you can't open the door of this machine, you've just spent, you know, four or $500,000 on, the perception dropped in the industry. And they changed that uh, by, using, uh, by using one of our products that have, let's say, adjustable precision. And those kind of domino effects are what it's all about, right? So... I love it. I think on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap this interview. Thank you so much to both of you for giving us this timeline on the evolution of linear bearings, how they've made their way into more industries, and really how that evolution has shown there are key parts of the process that haven't changed and that definitely should. So hopefully, if our listeners have learned anything from this conversation, it's ask the right questions, be intentional with your linear bearing solutions and make sure that they match your industry and really understand why those small investments can have huge ripple effects and why it's worth rethinking, do I have the right solution for the job? So thank you again to our two guests. It's really been a pleasure. We've been chatting with Scott Spangler, president of Rollon, and Andrew Allendorf, director of sales for Rollon. Scott and Andrew, if folks want to find out a little bit more about Rollon's approach to linear bearings, get in touch, or just get more info on your product line, how can they learn more? Well, I mean, obviously, you go to the website. That's a good first place uh, first place to stop there. And then uh, on there, you can find all our uh, local representation in the different territories and contact. We have, we have regional engineers uh, in the different parts of the country. So we have engineers at your disposal that are local to, to the customer and Talk to them about your application, and we'll go from there. I love it. Easy enough. All right. Thank you again, Scott Spangler, Andrew Allendorf. It's really been a pleasure chatting today and uh, looking forward to some future conversations. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for watching and listening to this episode of Line It Up, a roll-on podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and make sure you're heading to our website, rollon.com, for a variety of different industry thought leadership, including videos, articles, podcasts, and more. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you next time on Line It Up, a roll-on podcast.